Remember this Lord's Day, we've assembled again for public worship, and we are examining the subject of the mystery of human suffering. And today's message will be the second in that series, and we're going to be dealing with the title of The Problem of Suffering. And we'll be examining carefully the character of God as it relates to human suffering. I'm going to be reading two passages of Scripture, both from the Psalms, Psalm 11 and Psalm 13. If you would be locating those in your Bibles. First Psalm 11. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In the Lord will I put my trust. How say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that love violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Now let's move over to the 13th Psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him. And those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. One of the hymns that we sang in the song service this morning talked about expressing in the form of a prayer of going deeper into the understanding of God. And that is what this series of messages will take us. It will stretch your thinking but it will bear forth fruit if you will stay with us on this. The first couple of messages are somewhat more philosophical in nature rather than expositional. And today's message is like that as well. In the first message, we trace the origin or the source of all suffering to the universal curse which God has placed upon his creation that was brought about by the fall of the angels and men. 
So that all human suffering, when you look at it and examine it and take it back through history, will find its origin back in that fall. Now, this understanding helped us to erect one side of the framework in putting together the pieces which make up the puzzle in explaining human suffering. We are going to take the series, and as we have the board here to my left or your right, whatever the case may be, we are going to use the pieces of the puzzle that form the straight line first, because that's the best way to deal with a jigsaw puzzle, is get the outside framework. And this outside framework will be setting forth four truths in which that we must stay confined within those truths if we're going to take the rest of the Bible's explanation of suffering. And the first one on the first side we called last week the creature's sin. You cannot understand the Bible and its description of human suffering by denying the creature's sin. It won't make any sense to you. So we must affirm that and stay within that framework. Many of the philosophies that we'll be touching on today deny the sinfulness of the creature and having any connection with suffering. And then the second part of the framework we're dealing with today, and that will be examining the character of God as individuals have tried to relate that character to human suffering and giving an explanation of it. And as you will follow me, you will find that all of these philosophies, in some way or another, will limit the character of God as revealed in Scripture. And we cannot do that. If in order to explain human suffering, we try to limit the being of God, we end up not being able to have an answer from the Bible for human suffering. So now we're ready before us today to put the second part of the framework into place. And we will be addressing the problem of suffering as it relates to the character of God and looking at the problem of suffering. We stated in message number one that if you believe in the existence of God, you have a problem. And we must deal with that problem honestly. The Bible claims that God exists. Enough? The Bible claims that He is good. That He is loving. That He is kind. That He's merciful. That He loved righteousness and hates evil. Among many aspects of the character of God. Further, the Bible reveals that he is omnipotent, meaning he is able to do whatever he pleases. He's all-powerful. That he exercises total sovereignty. By that word, we mean he does whatever he pleases. Thus, he is able to eliminate evil and suffering. And yet, there is evil and suffering existing in the world. This appears to be a contradiction. 
Whether we see one deformed child or thousands die in a flood, we cannot help but asking, what is the purpose in this? The problem of suffering has been used as the principal reason for skepticism throughout the centuries of time. It strikes at the very heart of the Christian faith, which talks of a loving God who controls all things which come to pass. David Hume, the 18th century Scottish skeptic, put it this way. He said, were a stranger to drop suddenly into this world, from outside this world, he says, I would show him a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, or individuals that have died in a battle, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, and pestilence. Honestly, I don't see how you can possibly square this with an ultimate purpose of love. End of quote. Another unknown skeptic sets forth the problem in these words. He says, and listen, you young people that are either in college or soon will be going to college. This skeptic says, it is not science that has led me to doubt the purpose and existence of God. It is the state of the world. It is the pitiful, unending struggle for existence among the nations. It is the collapse of our idealism before the brute facts of force and chaos it is the feeling that there is something demonic in the heart of things which is working against us. That there is a radical twist in the very constitution of the universe which will always defeat man's hopes, make havoc of his dreams, and bring pathetic optimism crashing into disaster. Purpose, look at the world. That settles it. End of quote. What that man doesn't realize is that he has just described Genesis 3 in the fall and what was going to happen to Adam's race after the fall. Oh, we have young people start out on their life's journey full of optimism and upbeat, and then they hit the hard facts of life. Suffering devastates and diminishes that optimism. And this skeptic has placed it well and described it well. It's almost like there is a demonic force in the universe that is eroding our very purpose of existence and is destroying our hopes and our ideals. Now, this skeptic that I've just quoted who is unknown, may think he has solved the problem of God and suffering by removing God from the equation. 
But he is still left with the problem of suffering. Okay? You can say there is no God, but you still have the problem of suffering to contend with. I'd like to now examine some of the proposed solutions which have been given to explain the relationship of suffering with the being of God. Some of you will be familiar with some of these. Some of you will not. Some of you may yet come in in contact with some of these in future studies or people that you meet. So let's go through this series of explanations to try to explain why there could be human suffering in connection with the existence of God. Well, first, we will examine some non-Christian solutions to the problem. The first one being atheism itself. And I used to be in this category. Atheism attacks the problem of suffering and God by removing God from the picture. He is replaced with the belief that matter has always existed and is continually evolving into different shapes and things. There is no rational purpose of design in the creation. By raising the question of suffering and evil, the atheist believes he has sprung a trap which destroys theism or the belief in the existence of God. But in doing so, the atheist ends up ensnared in his own question. This is illustrated by Ravi Zacharias, a noted current Christian philosopher. In one of his lectures, he was addressed by a questioner from the audience. The questioner said, There cannot possibly be a God with all the evil and suffering that exists in the world. Mr. Zacharias replied, When you say that there is such a thing as evil, are you not assuming that there is such a thing as good? The skeptic said, Of course. Mr. Zacharias then asked, But when you assume that there is such a thing as good, are you not assuming that there is such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to distinguish good and evil? I suppose so, came the hesitant reply. Mr. Zacharias then asked this question. If then there is a moral law, You must maintain a moral lawgiver. But that is who you are trying to disprove. If there is no moral lawgiver, there is no moral law. And if there is no moral law, there is no good. And if there is no good, there is no evil. I'm not sure what your question is. There was silence. And then the skeptic said, Well, what then am I asking you? (laughs) The momentary humor was inescapable. He was visibly shaken that at the heart of his question lay an assumption that contradicted his conclusion. And even as the laughter subsided, 
Mr. Zacharias said, I reminded him that I accepted the question, but that his question justifies my assumption that this is a moral universe. For if God is not the author of life, neither good nor bad has any meaningful term. And that's why the fruit of atheism has produced Hitler's and Stalin's and things throughout history like this. And both of those great leaders, we want to call them great, said they owed the origin of their understanding to Charles Darwin's book on the origin of the species. Dana, if there is no such thing as a lawgiver, you cannot determine what's good and bad. Who would be, who would then say Hitler was wrong in killing all those people? He's just doing his thing. Hmm? See that? Now that's why our society is crumbling as God is being removed from the picture. You're seeing horrible things taking place even in our American culture. In reality, atheism depreciates the existence of evil by ascribing all there is as being the result of evolutionary chance. Why should any atheist become upset over suffering? Since it is but the outworking of Darwin's survival of the fittest. If you see it in the animal creation, why should it bother you seeing it in the human creation? By removing purpose and design, the atheist removes hope and comfort from those who are suffering. Atheism has no answer of comfort to a person who suffers. Let's move now to the second philosophy, which attempts to deal with the problem of God and the issue of human suffering, and that is what is known as deism. The difference between a theist and a deist must be understood. A theist is one who believes in a personal, transcendent God who is both creator and providential ruler of his creation. By that big word, transcendent, we mean the transcendency of God means he surpasses, he excels, he exceeds his creation. A deist believes that there is a transcendent God and may believe even that this God is a person, but denies that this God reveals himself in a personal manner. He's an impersonal God. The deist thinks of God as the Creator who, after creating the universe, established its laws and its order, and then let it go on its own way, much in the way a watchmaker produces a well-designed mechanism, but has no interest in its workings once it's been completed. The deist God is too big to bother with little things like the suffering of human beings, in much the same way that we as human beings don't care much 
about the suffering of a mosquito with a broken wing. When's the last time you got concerned about that? Hmm? Next time a mosquito gets hung in your screen and it's got a broken wing, you're going to go out and take it to the emergency room? Now, why not? That's such a microscopic insect in relation to me. It's not important. That's the way the deist views God as God views us. God is just too big to get involved in the small details of the suffering of human beings. The price of resolving the problem of suffering by embracing deism is extremely high in that this God is so far removed from our grief that he couldn't care less about what's happening to us. Let's move now to the third non-Christian solution for suffering, and that's pantheism. This is the belief that God and the universe are one. They're not separate. There is no distinction between the Creator and the created. All that is, is God. God is whatever is. That's why a few years ago, Shirley MacLaine could make that that boast stand up on her mountain and say, I'm God! I'm God! I'm God! Well, that's where she was getting her idea from. I'm God, because everything's God. This is the worldview of Hinduism and the New Age movement. This view denies that God is personal and transcendent. And thus, He cannot come from beyond to help us. Since one is God, then we must promote our own well-being. The entire universe belongs to one order. But within this universe, there are levels of attainment. And what Christians see as sin or evil, the pantheist sees as mere imperfections that need to be removed. By progressive self-realization and improvement. And the goal of human beings, as viewed by the pantheist, is not to have their sins forgiven, and to be reconciled to a moral God who holds them accountable. But the goal is to spiral up through the cycle of life, through meditation, self-focus, self-improvement, and then ultimately through reincarnation. This view in practice breeds fatalism and produces or depreciates, rather, suffering and evil. To ask why there is suffering indicates to a pantheist a proof of immaturity that refuses to accept things as they are. And thus, the more one resigns oneself to suffering, the more they are progressing into this upward spiral of perfection. Get it? Instead of fighting suffering, you just resign yourself to suffering. And the more you resign yourself to suffering, the less pain you will experience. The fourth principle of non-Christian solution is that of dualism. 
This is the belief that there are two moral principles operating in the universe, a principle of good and a principle of evil. And neither can master or control the other. Sometimes this view is refined by personalizing God as the source of all good and Satan as the source of all evil. Have you heard that in Christian circles? Yes. But neither is absolute or all-powerful. This view, like all other views which limit the character of God's being, ends up with a solution which presents a greater problem than the problem it is seeking to avoid. It is an effect. It destroys any hope of things ever getting any better. If you've got a God and a devil, which are in a war with each other, and one's against the other, and never going to get any better, then things are never going to improve. This thing's going on infinitely. Or we might look at it this way, the possibility that evil might win out after all. After all, it's got a 50-50 chance. Pretty good odds, isn't it? Now let's move from the non-Christian proposed solutions to the character of God and the existence of evil. Notice all of these have limited the character of God as revealed in the Bible. This is why I'm saying that if we're going to understand the mystery of human suffering and then move into the mystery of Christian suffering, we must stay within that framework. We cannot deny the creature's sin and the character of God as revealed in Scripture. Now, let's move to what I'm going to call sub-Christian or sub-biblical solutions to the problem of suffering and evil. Why do I call these sub-Christian and sub-biblical? I do so because they are found among professing Christians. Now listen, Christians who do not use all of the biblical data in forming their positions. Some Christians are ignorant of the biblical data. And other Christians are arrogant in selecting certain biblical references while rejecting other biblical references, and thus their conclusions are flawed, because in order to come up with a bottom line conclusion on something that the Bible teaches, you need to expose yourself to all of the biblical data you can find on that given subject. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting on a jury and reach a wrong conclusion about the guilt or the innocent of the person that you're there to judge. Let's look at the first sub-Christian view trying to explain the suffering of humans and the character of God. And that's the view that denies God's goodness. It limits the goodness of God. That is what we will begin with in calling Gnosticism. Gnostic means to know, having 
a special knowledge. Gnosticism denies the goodness, now listen, of the Creator as revealed in the Bible. Gnosticism believes that all matter is evil. Now, I'm looking at matter today. In fact, I, I don't see a single spirit present this morning. I see matter everywhere. That doesn't mean that there's not a world of spirits. There are angels and men spirits. But I look out and I see matter. The Gnostic says all matter is evil. And that the God who created matter back in Genesis is an evil God. But the supreme God is good and is comprised of eternal spirit. The Gnostic doesn't believe that the supreme God is the God revealed in the Bible, particularly in Genesis. Gnosticism rejects apostolic Christianity and claims to possess a higher revelation of knowledge than that which was transmitted through the apostles. It wants to be known as true Christianity, but because it rejects biblical authority, it must be rejected as Christian. The only hope that Gnosticism gives to sufferers is to long for the time to come when they shall die and escape this body and then live forever in an eternal, pure spirit like God. And to talk to a Gnostic of the idea of being put back in the resurrection into a human body is blasphemy to the Gnostic. That's a come down. So the only hope the Gnostic has is to get out of this body and to get into the realm of the spirit because the spirit is pure. is evil. The second sub-Christian or sub-biblical approach to trying to explain the problem is to limit the power of God by denying that God is all-powerful. By this, professing Christians that take this position usually do not mean that He is instinctively limited or intrinsically limited, but that he chooses, now follow me, to limit himself for various reasons. The main reason being so that moral creatures can be absolutely free in their choices. That God can't be all-powerful and have the creature have the freedom to possess free will. So God must limit Himself in order for the creature to be free. Thus, the creature's choices must be entirely free from divine control. It is argued that if God had absolute control of all things, then moral beings would not be free and therefore not morally responsible. Now, this aspect of the free will position affirms that while God knows the future actions of men 
and the sufferings which will follow, he chooses not to act to restrain that evil. Okay? It attributes to God, Brother Dana, knowledge of the future, but it also attributes to God he has limited control of the future in that he must leave that up to the freedom of the angels and the men to make their free choices. This approach is used to explain away the determinism of God's sovereign decrees of predestination. But in reality, it does not solve the problem at all. Why so? Now, this position does not want to see a fixed future that is determined. All right? But now listen. If God knows that a certain event will take place, if He chooses not to use His power to act, it is hard to see how His restraint differs from an absolute decree. Even God cannot know what is uncertain. For God to foreknow the future, it means, Brother Pete, the future must be fixed. It's not in flux. So the problem that is tempting to be solved here by limiting the power of God and still allowing Him omniscience, that is, all knowledge, does not solve the problem because you can't know something unless it is already certain and fixed. This position of self-imposed limitations by God on His power is supposed to remove Him from any controlling responsibility which may result in suffering. In other words, to protect God. But does it? Let's suppose I hold to this position. Suppose that I'm a prison guard assigned to see that the prisoners do not escape. A prison break occurs, and I observe one of the most dangerous prisoners escaping. I have the ability to stop him, but I choose not to use that ability lest I violate his free choice. That man's wanting out of jail. That's his choice. Why shouldn't he have that free choice? I've got the ability to stop him, but I want to respect his free choice so I don't interfere. While I do nothing to aid his escape, will the law not judge me as committing an evil act by permitting him to escape? If God knows something evil is going to occur and does not use His ability to stop it, does that not make Him responsible? So if I'm going to argue the way of the free will position, I've got myself dug deeper into a deeper problem than what I'm trying to solve. Think about that. We're going deeper, all right? The idea that limiting God's power protects him from the charge of causing suffering does not solve the problem. And to interject something that's not in my notes today, just reconsider for a moment the issue of God, the devil, and Job in the book of Job. 
Was not God behind that even though the devil was the instrument that inflicted the suffering? And Job had enough deep understanding to know that the Lord gives and what? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we, we don't solve anything by trying to limit the power of God and get Him out of the picture so that He's in no way has anything to do with our suffering. Now, in order to defend their view of what is involved in man's freedom, the advocates of free will are now pressed to go even further and limit the knowledge or the wisdom of God. And this is taking place now in what is known as process theism or open theism by asserting that God has given His moral creatures such awesome freedom that even He cannot know in advance what they are going to do. This reasoning, and they reason rightly if they're consistent with the presupposition, says that nothing can be known in advance unless it is certain to occur. They conclude that it is uncertain what a moral creature will choose to do if it has the ability to make the opposite choice between two or more options. Hmm? Asa, you're a moral creature. Let's suppose I give you a command. I don't know how you're going to choose to respond to me. Okay? I'm limited in knowledge. This position says that God must be limited in knowledge because if He knows what you're going to do in advance, that will interfere with your freedom. This is the outworking of a system that is trying to solve the solution of human suffering by removing God from the picture and yet call itself Christian at the same time. It would be logically impossible in this system for God to foreknow the free choices of His creatures. It would then be easily observed that it would be possible that God may be thwarted in His experiment with His moral creatures. In fact, it might even be possible that creatures have such power in their free will that To God's surprise, rebellion may break out in heaven once again and the new heaven and the new earth. Hmm? To those that are here today and you're struggling with that issue of human freedom, I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that you are a moral creature today? Do you believe you will remain a moral creature when you reach heaven? Hmm? Can you sin in heaven? then it is not necessary to define free will as the ability to choose between two opposites. God is free, but He never chooses to sin. God who cannot what? Lie. Promise. Does not God have free will? Then the definition that is used by free will is flawed. Not the ability to choose between two opposites. It's the ability to choose what your nature desires. 
And God has a nature that loves righteousness. And we as fallen creatures have natures that love sin and unrighteousness. Now, most Christians would balk at such a suggestion of rebellion breaking out in the new heaven and the new earth. And they would appeal to the Bible that when it describes a time coming when God will establish a new order of things in a new heaven and a new earth, in such a state of existence, man will no longer be able to love God supremely. But the question, as I've just raised, is this. Will they still retain absolute freedom? Or will they cease to be moral creatures? The definition of free will by the advocates of human freedom is forced to be altered or abandoned. Also, if God, now listen, if God can so arrange things in the new heaven and the new earth out here, where we will love Him supremely and without failure, why could He not have done so without taking us all through this world in a path of suffering? What say you? I'd like to get a few hands today. How many of you believe that there will be no sin, no suffering, nor pain in the new heaven and new earth? And that will be made up of human beings, right? Could not God have created a race of human beings and put them in that state without ever having to go through this present world? Then why did He do so? What's that? But does that free will mess up the eternal plan of God? Does the free will control God? That's the issue. You have to start limiting God's power or you have to start limiting God's wisdom. One or the other. But those positions. So you're in a tension there. And that's why if you start limiting the character of God and His ability to control even the choices of the creature, you end up with no ultimate explanation of human suffering. Let's move on. These considerations must be addressed by those who seek to answer the problem of human suffering by limiting either the power or the wisdom of God or both. The last sub-Christian view, which we will have time to cover, is that of denying that suffering even exists. This is the Christian science approach. Suffering, as held by this position, is only an illusion of the mind, which can be conquered by replacing the illusion of suffering with the reality of non-suffering. Illustrated, driving a nail in a board, I missed the nail and hit my thumb. Now, what do you do? You yell. The Christian scientist says, no, you're not hurting. This is all an illusion. It's all in your mind. I'm not hurting, I'm not hurting, I'm not hurting. And if you think positively enough, then you blot out the illusion of pain and replace it with the reality that you're not really suffering at all. 
I always think of that when I see the Andy Griffith show. You remember the episode in which little Opie is dealing with Barney? And Barney thinks he's a Atlas, great muscle man. He hit him in the stomach. Now hit me. Won't hurt. Won't hurt. Well, Opie hit him. Barney has to pull a Christian science thing on us. I'm not hurting. I'm not hurting. I'm not hurting. This requires an extremely powerful imagination to pretend that there is no suffering going on. And in reality, Christian scientists become sick and die just like everybody else does. And if we are having an illusion of suffering, Brother Jim, are we not still suffering from the illusion? This approach puts tremendous pressure on people who are actually suffering. It makes them feel guilty for not having enough faith to recognize that they're not really suffering. You see, a more refined variation of this approach is to redefine suffering as simply a failure to accept whatever is happening to us. So suffering is thus reduced to a function of a mental attitude. The ultimate form of this approach is found in Buddhism, which denies that suffering is nothing more than the gap between what I have and what I want. To get rid of suffering, you just get rid of all desire, including the desire to want anything. To get rid of pain, you must get rid of all desire, including the desire to get rid of pain. And when one extinguishes all desire, they reach the end of suffering, which is called nirvana. This process is like a kind of spiritual euthanasia. It can be likened to killing the patient in order to cure the disease. The bottom line is that none of these proposed solutions, be they non-Christian or sub-Christian, solves the problem of suffering existing in God's world. If we embrace any of these explanations, we end up with a God who is not the God of the Bible. And remember, if we're going to worship the God of the Bible, we must bow to all of the data in the Bible revealed about this God. We cannot remain ignorant of some of it or be arrogant and choose some and reject others. We are bound to bow before the authority of the revelation of God's character revealed in Scripture. And the Bible reveals that God is all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign, and all-good, that He rules over all of His creation, and not a sparrow falls from its nest without His knowledge. He knows the number of hairs upon our very head. Not one atom or molecule in the universe is outside of His active rule and control. 
if just one breaks free from God's ability to control it, what in the world would happen in this universe? Just one atom getting out of control. King Nebuchadnezzar of old confessed this. You remember the account of Nebuchadnezzar? Mighty Babylon, which I built with my own wisdom, my own power. And God took him down, took his sanity away from him, caused him to eat grass in the fields like an animal. And after a certain length of time, God restored his sanity back to him. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar confessed he learned about the God that is revealed in Scripture. Quoting from Daniel 4.35, quote, He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Or what are you doing? It is this understanding of God's character that lays in place the second side of the framework in our effort to better understand the puzzle of the mystery of human suffering. Whatever else we're going to discuss in the future messages hereafter, we must not ignore the sin of the creature as the origin of suffering, and we must not try to limit the character of God's being in order to try to allow Him to escape and non-accountable for suffering. When we start doing that, here's what will happen. Instead of a perfect square in our puzzle, we'll come up with a warped thing, and the pieces of the data will not fit in the Scripture. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll move into the subject of the path of suffering, start in Genesis and come down to the present time and see in biblical and secular history the impact that human suffering has had upon the human race of Adam. Stay with us. Pray as we labor together. I don't have all of the answers. In fact, When we get the puzzle finished, there's going to be some pieces in there that are missing. And you know why? Because God is God. He has given us a sufficient amount of understanding in His revelation that is determined by Himself and no more. We will reach a point in which that we must pull off our shoes and bow and worship. Okay? And many of the problems that we run into in Scripture, in handling Scripture, is that we try to take pieces of biblical data and force them to fit together when they don't all fit together. Because God, now listen, has left some of the pieces out. But we want a system in which we have all of the answers nip and tuck. And God will not allow that. The secret things belong unto the Lord, and the things which belong unto us 
the revealed things belong unto us and our children that we may do them all the days of our life. I have all I can handle, Brother Bob, with the revealed will of God. There are secret things in which that God has made known in the Scripture of what He's up to, but He has not revealed everything. And it must remain mystery. And we must be content with that. But I do promise you, there will be some enlightening things begin to take place here in the weeks ahead to help us explain the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and all of these suffering things that are existing today. Where is God at in all of this upheaval? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in the character that you have made known of yourself in the Bible. We pray that we as Christians may study the Scriptures to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray that whenever that we encounter data in the Bible that contradicts our, script, our system, that we may alter our system and not your word. May you conform us to your will by the revelation of Holy Scripture. May your Spirit accompany that revelation by working on our faculties to humble us and make us submissive to what you make known in the Bible. Bless us as a church, as individuals, and as families as we seek to know you better. And help us, O God, in those hours of trial in which that we cry out, Why me, O Lord? Why is this occurring? Help us to trust and to know you better. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. Dana.